Well, if you go onto the, uh, the website of many um, organizations today, whether a business, uh, a charity, uh, maybe a school, what you often find is their values. Uh, these are things that the organization believes are important in the way they conduct their, their business, um, how they relate to one another inside the organization and outside the organization. Of course, these values will only have meaning if they are lived out and not just there for show. And people see that it makes a difference to that organization, how it is distinctive. These, for example, are, are the values that one large UK corporate has on its website. Um, I don't know whether anybody better guess uh, which particular company that is. The, the colors might give it a little bit away. Um, any guesses? Sorry? Did I hear somebody say BP? Yes, there you go. Um, whether you think they live those values out, I'll leave that up to you to, to make your mind up. But we're starting a new series in Matthew 18 to 20. And over the next few weeks in these passages, we're going to be looking at what Jesus says about how those belonging to the kingdom of God should behave. What are the kingdom values? Uh, these are the values we'll be looking at from these passages. Uh, humility, forgiveness, faithfulness, sacrifice, grace, and servanthood. Values, I think, you'll be hard-pressed to find on the website of any secular organization. The context of these chapters is Jesus is approaching the end of his ministry. And in chapter 21, we'll read about him going up to Jerusalem for the last week of his life. And so he's keen to leave his disciples with some clear instructions. Instructions which are relevant not just for them then, but for us today. And these values are how Christians should behave. Uh, they're therefore what should characterize relationships between believers in, in the church. And as with any organization, there's no point in us saying these are our values if we're not going to, to live them out. The great news as we go through this series, though, is that it's not about coming up with a, a benchmark of behavior that we have to somehow live up to, that we have to pass in order to be acceptable to God and beating ourselves up if we don't make it. It's being aware of God's character and it's rejoicing in God's grace because it's God's grace that enables us to imitate his character, that enables us to live in a Christ-like way. It's rejoicing in the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives in each believer and who makes us aware of what sort of behavior is pleasing to God. Well, one of the key values that defines us if we are Christians and makes us distinctive from the world around us is the one we're looking at this morning. As Mark said earlier, that is humility. Because the values of the world are quite against humility. They're, they're, they're seek your own success. Seek your achievement, your status, your, your wealth. Make yourself happy. Uh, and make sure everybody knows uh, what you have done. Don't be quiet about it. Drop it into to conversation. And humility says, actually, I've got a lot of weaknesses. I've got a lot of failings. And that's okay. Because God loves me despite those failings. And all the things I have achieved, I've done through his strength, through him working through me. So I want the glory to go to him and not to me. 
It's probably one of the hardest values that we as Christians can seek to emulate because um, humility is in a constant battle with our pride. As Christians, we have acknowledged our pride. We've been forgiven for it, um, but we haven't yet got rid of it. And the dangerous thing about pride is that it's so subtle, isn't it? We often see it in others, but we're blind to it in ourselves. So let's see what Jesus teaches us about this whole subject of humility in this chapter this morning. And the first thing is that humility is accepting our dependence on God's grace and seeking his glory. Disciples have a look at verse 1, come to, to Jesus, and they ask him this question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, when we maybe think of greatness, we think of, uh, of status, of power, of popularity, uh, maybe being recognized for our achievements. And it looks like G- Jesus' disciples are taking this concept of greatness and applying it to the kingdom of heaven falsely. They're saying, who's going to get the top positions? Maybe they're thinking, who's done the most healings? Who's um, converted the most people? Who, who's been most faithful to Jesus in his ministry? But Jesus says to them, you cannot achieve anything without God's grace. You don't really deserve his loving kindness, but amazingly, he loves you. And Jesus tries to explain this to his disciples with a live visual aid. He calls a little child and places that child among the disciples. And if you can think of a little child in the middle of 12 uh, grown men, that child will look insignificant. And that is the point. He's saying, this is not about positions in the kingdom. This is about who will enter the kingdom. And he's pretty direct with them, isn't he? Um, look at the words uh, on the screen, in verse 2 onwards. Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child or whoever makes himself humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. To become like a little child is to take the lowly insignificant position of that child. Why is the child insignificant? Because they're not able to do anything for themselves. They they cannot earn money to to buy food or, or clothes or somewhere to live. They don't have the wisdom or the experience uh, to make wise decisions. They're totally dependent on the adults around them. And that is what Jesus is saying. Becoming like little children means accepting we cannot do anything ourselves without God's help. We are totally dependent on him. We cannot make ourselves good enough for him. But the good news is we don't need to. Because Jesus has done that for us. He's humbled himself. He came down from heaven, from the glory of heaven as a, as a human being. He took the punishment that we deserved. And therefore we need to trust that his grace, his loving kindness is enough for us. And that requires change. It requires conversion. Because it's, it's saying instead of trusting in myself, I will trust instead in him. And it's also saying, instead of doing everything for for my glory, me wanting to be great, I will do it for God's glory. 
Because in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God, there is only one person who is great, and that is God. Everything we do is to show people how great and good and glorious he, he is. It's not about us. And if we're going to show how great God is, then we're going to have to treat others in the way he treats them. Which is why Jesus says, um, uh, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And that is why we're here as a church. We are, we are here to glorify God. And we do that by putting the needs of others first. Not insisting that things are done the way we think they should be done. As it says in this uh, this little book, I'm a church member, which we're going to uh, let uh, all of you have a copy of, and we'll do that through through the home groups. Um, it says this on page uh, 30, 36. It says, we will never find joy in church, in church membership, when we are constantly seeking things our way. But paradoxically, we will find the greatest joy when we choose to be last. That's what Jesus meant when he said the last will be first. True joy means giving up our rights and preferences and serving everyone else. And that's what church membership means as well. And he goes on to mention some some dominant behavior patterns of of churches that are largely self-serving rather than serving the needs of others. And one of those he mentions is evangelistic apathy. Uh, where members are more concerned about their own needs than the greatest eternal needs of the world and the community in which they they live. And I hope we never get to that point where our gospel outreach is held back by our own needs. Well, if humility is what marks the Christian, then that is why the warning that comes in the next verses is so serious. Have a look at verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble. It will be better for them to have a large millstone hung round their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And when Jesus talks about these little ones, he's now no longer specifically talking about children. He's talking about who they represent, those who believe in me, those who depend on God's grace, those who seek his glory. So what do we learn about humility from these verses? Well, we learn that humility means being honest about the things that cause us to stumble. Um, Jesus is warning against the people, against the things that might undermine the faith of his people. And so he goes on, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. The word, the word world here refers to those who, who do not believe. But as we saw in the last sermon series, remember God has a heart for the lost. He has a heart for the world, for those who don't yet believe. And so this word woe is an expression of sadness. It's an expression of compassion. He's saying that in a fallen world, which has rejected God, which follows different values there will inevitably be things that cause his people to stumble. That will undermine their faith. Now that may be the attraction of things that provide short-term pleasure. It may be the the flattery of people who who make us think we've achieved stuff in our own strength, who who build up our pride. 
It may be the, the undermining of our trust in the authority of God's word or undermining our trust in God as a creator God. Whatever it is, Jesus says, woe to the person through whom they come. But what Jesus also makes clear is that we're not just victims here. We are responsible for our own choices. If we are aware of our areas of weakness, our areas of vulnerability, we need to do something about it. Have a look at verse verse 8 here. It says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now the stakes here are high, aren't they? If we lose our faith, we face the eternal fire of hell. We don't know exactly what hell will be like, but we are told it will be painful and it will be eternal. It's not something we would wish upon anyone. And so we need to avoid it at all costs. And if our entry to the kingdom depends on our faith in Jesus... We need to take seriously anything that might cause us to stumble, might cause us to lose our faith. Of course, this is figurative language, but it's making the point we need to do something drastic. It's not just what we do with our hands or, or our feet, where we go, but what we do with our eyes, what we, what we read, what we look at. Don't allow your hearts to become polluted by the things of the world. So think about it. What is that for you? What is your area of weakness? And if you're not sure, pray about it. Ask God to reveal it to you. Ask him for strength to do something about it. And this is where the church can help. This is why we are here. You know, uh, One of our mission statements is to encourage one another to persevere in the face of trials. And trials may be trials of, uh, of poor health, they may be all sorts of things, but um, equally they may be the trials of temptation. Who do you go to to ask for help? As pastors, we're always here, always available to, to speak to you, to help you, to pray for you. But are there others you can speak to and confide in? But what this passage also shows is that God does not abandon us when we wander. It shows just how precious is each individual to the Father. He's concerned about our relationship with him. He's concerned about where we will spend eternity. And so when we do wander, he doesn't just abandon us. He doesn't just say, oh, good luck to you. He pursues us. Have a look at the the parable of the the wandering sheep in verses 10 to, to 14 there. Jesus starts by saying, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And again, the little ones are his people, his his flock. Don't despise them, for I tell you that they're angels in heaven. Always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, some may argue this shows that uh, we each have a guardian angel. 
That may be the case, we may do. Um, I'm not sure it's clear enough from that to argue that conclusively. But what it does show is that these angels who look out for us uh, always see the face of my Father in heaven. So God is aware of the situation of each one of us. He knows our struggles. He knows when we start to wander, when we start to maybe uh, make unhelpful friends, when we start to indulge in behavior that is displeasing to him, when we start to value other things instead of him, when we start to live our lives without him. And what does he do? He goes after us. He goes to rescue us. As a shepherd, he may have a hundred sheep but he doesn't say, well, I've got so many, I can afford to lose one. That doesn't matter. Each one is precious to him. And so he rejoices over each one that he finds. Each one he brings back into the flock. He's not willing, it says here, that any of these little ones should perish. I thought James' slide last week he showed when he gave his testimony was great. Um, uh, the bungee run where he tried to pull away from God, but God's just pulling him back. He can't get away from God. God comes and pulls us back. I think, for me, though, maybe the bungee jump is actually, um, uh, in some ways, a better image because God actually allows us to, to do things where we fail. He allows us to experience the consequences of our bad choices, our bad decisions. But then he pulls us back. He protects us from complete disaster. He pulls us up. And if God shows that, that loving concern for each individual here, then shouldn't we do the same? Which brings us um, finally to our responsibility as a church in all of this, because humility means being willing to be accountable to one another. If you're a member of this church, you are saying, I humbly acknowledge my weaknesses And I am quite happy for you to challenge me about my behavior because I know you are concerned for me. You can't say, well, it's none of your business. Because that's just pride, isn't it? We we are accountable to one another. If you're unhappy about something I've said, maybe something I've done which you uh, feel has, has undermined the gospel, maybe it's caused somebody to stumble, then it's your responsibility to come to me and tell me that. There's a helpful process that Jesus outlines here. And the goal of this process is restoration. To restore the person who's wandered, who's stumbled, back to his relationship with Jesus. Jesus says, If your brother, verse 15, or sister sins... And there's a footnote here to say it might be sins against you or, or just sins, but either way it doesn't matter because one person's sins can affect the whole church. Uh, it can, can cause others to stumble. So if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And the key thing here is go to them. Go to them. Don't start to, to gossip about them to others. Because gossip is a, is a killer in a church. It causes great division. Because you never know how much is true from what you're hearing. You're hearing one side. So if anyone comes to you, you know, and starts to gossip about somebody else, you know, the first question you need to ask them is, have you spoken to that person? Have you gone to them? As Jesus says we should. And so, you know, I'm not prepared to discuss this until you have gone to them and, and when they are present. Humility says, I know I am not perfect. But I won't be a source of gossip about the failings 
of others. Coming back to the process, Jesus says, go to the person, talk to them, uh, do it on a one-to-one, keep it discreet. Uh, Often that will be all it takes. Um, The person concerned may be oblivious to what he or she has done. Um, They may be grateful for the rebuke. They may be aware, but just needed somebody to to challenge them. So it says, if they listen to you, you have won them over. If they realize what they've done was wrong, uh, have repented, asked for forgiveness, um, they're prepared to change and move on. Of course, the opposite of humility is pride. And uh, often when we are challenged, we cannot see our sin. We're unwilling to accept that uh, what we have done is wrong. And we become defensive. We try and justify ourselves. And so it says here in verse 16, if, if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Often, a difficult situation requires involvement of one or two others who can act as a sort of a mediator. But if that fails, it says, it may be necessary in some cases to bring it all out into the open and tell the church, uh, partly to prevent any further gossip or division. The worst case, it may be that if the person is persisting in sin, which um, may affect the gospel witness of the church, um, it says here, you have to treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, someone who is not a a Christian, which means they wouldn't remain in membership of the church. Now, the thing with this is that it's actually quite rare that a sin leads to uh, someone either resigning from membership or having their membership um, terminated. What is much more common is that people tend to drift, don't they? They tend to uh, to wander. Maybe their attendance at uh, uh, church gatherings becomes less frequent. Um, other things become more important. Um, and that is why it's so important to have people around us who, who ask us those difficult questions. How are you doing spiritually? How is your relationship with Jesus? That is why small groups are so important, where, where deeper relationships can be formed where we can share our struggles more easily. We can have people pray for us. And Jesus says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's giving authority to you as apostles, and ultimately he's giving authority to the church to decide what is acceptable or not based on his teachings, based on what he has given us in his word. He's saying you can't compromise on my teachings. You can't compromise on the truth. I've given you what you need to know. Now go and put it into practice. And it's interesting that the, the, this, this passage ends with prayer. Because prayer is an expression of humility. It's saying, I can't do this in my strength. I acknowledge my weaknesses. I need your help, God. And so verse 19 says... Truly I tell you, that as two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. It's saying, I trust in you, God. I can't do this myself. I need your help. 
Once you give up praying, you're struggling your faith. You can't grow in your relationship with God without growing in prayer. And these verses are often taken a little bit out of context, used as promises for corporate prayer. And of course, you know, it's true if when two or three do gather together, God is with us. Uh, The context here seems to be more about uh, two people, an offender and offended, being reconciled as they depend on God's grace. God is with us when together we humbly acknowledge our need for his help. Or as we wrap it up, um, humility is accepting our dependence on God's grace, seeking his glory, not our own. It's being honest about the things that cause us to stumble, not being proud or defensive. It means being willing to be accountable to one another and seeking to grow together. None of us wants to see anybody stumble or wander. God does not want to see us stumble or wander. He won't abandon us if we do. He'll come after us. But to prevent it happening, we need to live out this value of humility. We need to put to death the sin of pride by the Holy Spirit's power. It's appropriate now as we come to the Lord's table, as we remember um, that we have all at one time wandered, but Jesus humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that we can be reconciled to him, so we can enjoy life, eternal life. So let's have a moment of quiet before we come to the table to give him thanks for his uh, willingness to humble himself. Maybe just to think of that remaining pride in us. Confess those sins of pride that make, that made his sacrifice necessary. It's a moment of quiet, just reflect on what has been said this morning, then we'll come around the Lord's table. <laughs>